You're listening to Garbage Into Gold, a Sixers podcast hosted by Brandon Apter and Jesse Larch. Part of Philadelphia Sports Nation, visit online at phlsportsnation.com. Garbage into gold. All right, everybody, it's time for a Sixers Celtics crossover podcast. Welcome in and thank you for listening. My name is Brandon Apter, part of the Garbage Into Gold podcast, a Sixers podcast, part of Philadelphia Sports Nation. I'm now joined by my co-host, Jesse Larch and Justin Quinn of the Celtics Wire and Celtics Lab podcast. Guys, how are you doing? And are you ready to talk some Sixers Celtics ahead of opening night? Indeed, I am. How about you? I'm looking forward to it. I get to go to opening night this year. So hopefully we beat down the Celtics a little bit. And I hope Justin's a little unhappy with how his season starts. (laughs) We got it coming. We got it coming. Well, these two teams in the same division have been linked a lot. It's been nearly two years since we've all spoken and the tables have turned, as we mentioned. There's been roster changeover, drafts, and different acquisitions by both teams. So, Justin, we'll start off with you. No more Kyrie, no more Al Horford, no more Aaron Baines. A lot of changes. So, general outlook, how are you feeling about the Celtics heading into the 2019-20 season? You might think, based on what we've lost, and it's quite a bit to some of your benefit, that I would be in some pretty down spirits but i'm actually pretty excited i'm a yukon fan we've got kemba walker he's you know about as good as we're gonna get of a kyrie irving replacement really it's a small miracle we managed to make that happen in the first place but the thing that i think is universally accepted and i am the biggest uh supporter of is the notion that you really took one of the most important aspects of our team over the last several years and incorporated into a front line that is, to be completely honest, giving me fits thinking about how it's going to feast on our defense. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a completely different look and really not sure what to expect from the Celtics, at least on our, 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 on our end. Uh, the battles head-to-head have been exciting over the past few years, especially the last one that we saw um, earlier or late last season. But you know, going over to the Philadelphia side of things, there's a lot that's changed over there too. You know, the Sixers had pretty much three teams in one season last year with all of the moves that they made to acquire Tobias Harris, Jimmy Butler. So now they have a roster that almost certainly won't have that type of changeover that they saw last season. So Jesse, how do you feel about the Sixers outlook going into the season? I'm feeling great. I mean, I thought the roster last year was obviously a title contender and you know, they fell four bounces on the rim shy of that. But this year, I think the team's even stronger than they were the year before. We'll kind of break down the roster and what changed in a little bit, but I'm feeling really optimistic. I've, I mean, it's almost a championship or bust kind of feel for me. I would agree. I, I, I get that feeling too. And without getting into the details that we're going to just yet, I really feel that, this is your season. The The things have aligned for you about as well as they possibly could in terms of both the East End in general. And 
you know, the question for me, at least for you guys, is seeing exactly how you guys deal with what you do have and what you're able to add later if needed. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how these young cores also go up against each other and up against other teams in the NBA, because that's really what these two teams have been based off of over the past couple of years. You know, you have you have had Kyrie Irving and Al Horford on the Celtics, but a lot of their talk over the past few years has been about the development of guys like Jason Tatum, guys like Jalen Brown. And with the Sixers, obviously you have Joel Embiid, uh, Ben Simmons, and all of the guys that they added there. But these two teams have really been involved in a lot of trades, especially when it comes to, to draft night, especially over the last few years, starting with Markel Fultz in 2017. And now this year with the Sixers and Celtics exchanging picks. So the draft is really the first thing that we're going to touch on with regard to changes to these teams. Uh, the Celtics traded the 20th pick to Philadelphia for the number 24 and 33 picks to select Grant Williams and Carson Edwards. So Justin, starting with you, with the Celtics' depth looking a little bit different than it was a year ago, do these guys factor into their rotation right away, or are they guys that are going to have to earn minutes uh, to start the season? Well, it really depends on what you think uh, these players should have in terms of roles. And I think as long as we have some measured expectations that they will be able to contribute uh, immediately in a small role that could expand into a fairly major one for one or both by season's end, uh, then I think you have some some reasonable expectations for both of these players. I, I definitely see big things in their future in terms of longevity and maybe even ceiling. But for now, uh, particularly with so many things in question with, with the Celtics roster and basically really the entire way the team is going to be organized after so many high-level departures, uh, I don't think it's very fair to expect more than, you know, about 10 minutes a game maximum for both of them in some supporting roles that can still be very effective. Just I don't I don't think that they have or should be expected to uh, contribute in any kind of a major way, particularly considering how late they were taken. Right. And when it comes to those two guys, they, they have different skill sets defensively and offensively. So for you, if they do end up working their way into a rotation, what would be a successful season from them from your point of view? Uh, well, for Edwards, he's really going to be, you know, following in the footsteps as many have compared him to Eddie House uh, or really any kind of uh, microwave, you know, get you buckets off the bench in a hurry type of a player. He might be able to step into a bigger role once he becomes more familiar with the speed of the NBA. But for now, I think just having him as instant offense off the bench to really power the second unit, probably with Ennis Cantor, uh, I think that... In that context, that would be a successful season. If he can work his way up to about 15 minutes a game, maybe even threaten kind of a six-man status, that's about the best I expect from him. But as long as he can stay on the floor defensively, being only six feet tall, uh, I think that that is a win for him. As far as uh, Williams goes, he is going to be facing a much bigger challenge in terms of adapting his role uh, to either be more of kind of a combo forward where he kind of played more of a center uh, in, at the collegiate level. He's kind of got to change his entire skill set, the way he defends, the, the way that he responds um, in game. It's going to be very, very different to him. His offense will stay largely the same, uh, but the, the proportion of where he gets his shots is going to change. And combining that with just a learning curve of learning to defend at the NBA speed, again, with him too, and really any rookie, 
Uh, it's going to mean that he is going to make mistakes that are going to get him taken off the floor. Uh, I think that depending on how well he can adapt to being a small ball uh, front court player, specifically a five, uh, he may be able to carve out additional minutes for himself to, to the level of 15, maybe even 20 minutes if things go very badly for some of the other bigs that Boston has brought on. But realistically, he's not going to be on any closing units um, for offense, at least. Maybe if his defense really grows by the end of the season, you could see him in there as one of the be- be- the one of the team's better defenders. But he still has a long way to go. And realistically, uh, I think 10 minutes a game, a game for him, particularly the first half of the season, is also a success. Right. So when one of the things that you mentioned was adjusting to the speed of the NBA with regard to defense, one of the rookies taking the class that the Sixers took with the 20th pick, courtesy of the Celtics after that trade, uh, was Matisse Thibel out of Washington, a defensive specialist. Jesse, on our previous episodes, you haven't been too shy in expressing your excitement for this guy. And in the if the preseason is any indication as to what he'll bring to the court, He's going to be a special addition to the core of this Sixers team. Yeah, and the way I think about it is, is like I like doing a lot of NFL draft predictions and going into tape when that time of year comes around. And there's always certain prospects that come up who look better on film than they test at a combine. Guys that don't run a fast 40, don't have a great vertical. But on tape, they're always around the ball. They're always making the play. And Matisse Thibel is that kind of player where he's so instinctual on the defensive end of the court that it has seemed to have been a seamless transition for him so far. And I think nobody really expected that right away. We all knew that that's why he was being billed as the best defensive player in that draft this past year. But I don't think anyone really figured he would be as good as he looks already going through preseason. And, I mean, if he's just being asked to shoot spot-up threes – He seems to be comfortable doing that right now, too. And the way the Sixers like to run their offense, that kind of seems to be what they're going to ask of him. He's not really going to be asked to do much more than stand on the line and field a pass and put a shot up. I had my eye on him in the draft, and a lot of of Celtics fans did as well. And even though I'm really happy with how things ended up working out in the long run, uh, there is always going to be a little part of me that regrets him going to you guys. Celtics fans seem to be pretty excited about the draft because they took two players that Sixers fans, or at least Sixers Twitter fans, have been talking about or were talking about going into draft night. So the Sixers went into the night with five or six picks, and they leave with two, one that ends up being a two-way player and Thibel. So... A lot of Sixers fans didn't really know what to take out of draft night, but it looks now, if, like I said, we know preseason is preseason, but if it's any indication, Thibel looks to be a, a solid addition to the Sixers for sure. No, I mean, I did want to talk about the guys the Celtics did get because I was very big. I was a very big fan of Carson Edwards and Grant Williams going into the draft. There were both guys I would have actually been okay with the Sixers taking at 24 had they not moved up for Thibel. And Thibel had also been okay with the 24 had he fell. But I think what the Celtics did, it's kind of, I don't want to say they've changed their identity, but really, if you look at those additions, Kemba Walker, Ennis Cantor, Carson Edwards, and Grant Williams, they're all scorers of the ball, and they're all suspect defensively. So it's, I mean, and, and that's not trying to like throw jabs or anything. That's 
that's just looking at their games. They're all very excellent on the offensive end of the court, and they're all lacking defensively, which Celtics teams in the past have been – I don't want to say they lacked offensively because they definitely didn't, but their identity was definitely on the defensive end of the court. So I think it, in that sense, it's going to be a very different Boston Celtics team, and we're kind of seeing that makeover take place. So before we move on from the draft topic, looking back on things – the Celtics, more or less, you can look at it this way, traded Markel Fultz and Matisse Thybul to Philadelphia for Jason Tatum, Grant Williams, and Carson Edwards. There have been numerous reports towards Danny Ainge saying that he would pick Jason Tatum no matter what happened in that draft. But looking back on things now and how everything has panned out for each team, Jesse, we'll start with you. Who do you think is better in off In terms here? of that direct swap, you have to say the Celtics because Jason Tatum, you know, as much as Sixers fans refuse to like him, he is a solid NBA player. And I even said going into that draft that coming out of that, like day one, as soon as they all hit the court for their first games, he would be the best player in that draft on the first day of the season. Now I think his ceiling is a little bit limited, but he's definitely a quality player. And we're seeing that he's got two years now, of being a reliable NBA producer. Markel Fultz, we still don't even know what he is. Like he's still, he's, uh, we don't know what's going on in Orlando with him because they, the Orlando Magic fans seem to be going through the same cycle that we did as Sixers fans with Markel Fultz, where you get these ghostly videos of him shooting jumpers. And then he gets in a game when he doesn't shoot the jumpers and he looks uncomfortable. So, I mean, I'm not sure if Markel Fultz is fixed. Um, Brandon, you know well how big of a fan I was of Fultz going into the beginning of his career. I wanted Tatum in that draft, though. I wanted Tatum. I was on the fence. I actually, I to be completely above board, like if you go back and search articles that I wrote at the time before we knew who was going to draft who, uh, I was really on board with the idea of drafting Fultz. And I, I was resigned to it. I was pretty sure we were going to take him. And, you know, my biggest problem with him at that time was that he was taking shots at Washington that I didn't think he was going to be able to replicate in the NBA, but not for the reasons clearly that ended up panning out. Yeah. And I think I mean, I remember exactly where I was when that trade happened, where the Sixers traded from number three to number one. And I personally, I didn't really like it from the start because Fultz is that guy where he was a primary ball handler. He had the ball in his hand most of the time at Washington. Didn't really see a whole lot of him off ball. And with a guy like Ben Simmons, who, still at this point hasn't developed a jump shot really i never understood why there would be two primary ball handlers on one team at the same time tatum just seemed like a more natural fit for the sixers and as far as the draft turned out i think i agree with jesse here i think the celtics definitely won the draft trade part of it but as the teams are right now i think it's pointing in the sixers direction and yeah clearly and <laughs> I'm okay with that. But one of the one of one of the former Celtics players and current Sixers players that made a big splash in terms of headlines over the summer in free agency was Al Horford. He had been a staple of the Celtics for a few seasons. 
But we've learned recently from an article that Horford had spoken with the Sixers prior to free agency officially beginning. This is a report. We don't know if it actually happened or not. Uh, He did actually have an offer from Boston and indicated that he may have stayed if he knew that Kemba Walker was in Boston's plans. But he ended up going to Philadelphia, keeping his word. So, Justin, your thoughts on how all of this ended up going? Not sure if you view it as tampering or not, but really a... Really, really a a big staple part of Boston's offense over the past few years. Absolutely. And I mean, yeah, it was totally tampering. But I mean, so did Boston did it immediately after being tampered with. Um, And we're kidding ourselves if we think that Boston doesn't and hasn't done exactly the same thing plenty of times on its own. So that part of tampering, I I don't have a problem with, frankly speaking. I think it's silly. Uh, The problem that I have with with this whole tampering business is what we saw from Rich Paul and Clutch Sports uh, holding two other teams, really three teams, hostage, uh, the Pelicans, the Celtics, and the Lakers, for much of last season and creating just an absolute shit show in the media that, you know, did damage to the ability of fans to watch players play the sport they already have signed contracts to participate in. That crap needs to stop. There are ways, uh, and they may have already solved this. We'll see. But, you know, I, I don't really have a problem with that. And I think the whole tampering thing was overblown. In fact, once that report you mentioned came out, which I think is probably pretty accurate, um, Again, it's a report we have no way of knowing, but the way I'm looking at it is basically the Al did what Al does. You know, we got Al when he didn't get the years and the money that Atlanta should have given him. And so they knew what was going to happen if they didn't come with their best offer. And, you know, they had reservations and maybe they'll prove right. We'll find out. Um about, you know, how well he'll age. I think personally, he will age fairly well for y'all under that contract. And maybe the last year won't be be worth the money you're paying him. But, you know, that's how contracts work. When you want to get the premier talent that is going to drive what you need to contend, you've got to pay a price sometimes on veteran talent that isn't always going to be worth it at the end of the contract. And that's okay. You know, and, you know, maybe that's not what Boston wanted. And that's okay, too. Uh, I think that, the rumblings were that he gave y'all his word before he found out about Kemba being a possibility and that maybe he actually did know uh, that Kemba was a possibility, but he wasn't going to back out on you and basically do uh, a Marcus Morris on, on you know, yeah. I love him too. God bless his soul. But uh, that was some, some dirty business <laughs> going on with uh, jumping ship on, on the San, San Antonio Spurs. So. Yeah, yeah so take. Al Horford, a guy that really caused a guy like Joel Embiid fits, and now they're going to be on the same team. We've seen them on the court a few times already in preseason action, but still a little bit to work out with regard to on-court fit. When it comes to Al Horford, despite his age, the four-year deal not only adds a solid, durable veteran to the court, but to the locker room as well. Sixers still have a young core, And he also provides some insurance for Joel Embiid, who has had a history of injuries. So, Jesse, talk about how Philadelphia will benefit with him now in the mix. I mean, I think the guy does so much on and off the court that it's just it's like a serious coup for this team to not only take him from Boston and weaken Boston in that sense. But now you have like the perfect guy to mentor Embiid. You have the perfect compliment to Embiid. And I think aside from even helping Embiid develop, I think he'll help Ben Simmons develop too because 
I mean, I know I've said it so many times, I'm almost beating a dead horse at this point, but I do not think Kyrie Irving's success in Boston is as much as it was without having Al Horford as a reliable outlet and having Al Horford as a guy to go around and set picks and screens for him to be able to do his game off of the dribble. So to me, I'm just thinking about Ben Simmons getting more space on the floor from a guy like Al Horford using his knowledge and his savvy to really open up the court for him. Yeah, and I think that um, the pairings that the Sixers are going to go with should be interesting as well. I'm not sure how often we'll see Embiid and Horford on the court, aside from when the starters themselves are out there, but uh, we've seen the preseason a little bit that Horford and Simmons have been paired together, while Richardson and Embiid have seen a little bit more time together. Justin, when you see uh, Twin Towers, as we've heard a lot of, big men be called before if they're a duo on the floor when you see a twin towers like that as a celtics fan how how do you go about attacking that and how do you think that they could take advantage of maybe not having speed on that aspect of the court really our only chance is to go super small and try to outshoot and outmaneuver you i really don't see any which way that even with a renewed uh, emphasis on attacking the cup that we are seeing from this younger version of the Celtics, we're just not going to get there against you guys. So we really do need to use our mobility, our speed, and our shooting to get around, past, and over you. That's really our only chance. And to be completely frank, I think, you know, not to get into to predictions, but I think we're going to have a really hard time even sneak, sneaking away with one regular season win. Against yeah, and you mentioned speed and, and quickness as one of the strengths of the Celtics, and that has always been something that Philadelphia has had some trouble with, especially prior to this season. Those small guards with speed and that can shoot in the mid-range and, and get to the rim really have been troublesome for them. Kemba Walker is one of those guys that has burned the Sixers many times in the past. So one of the biggest adjustments for Boston will be the loss of Kyrie, as we mentioned before, and transitioning to a guy like Kemba Walker, who has a little bit of a different game. So, Justin, do you think Boston is better moving forward with him or or not? Um, I think for a lot of reasons, mainly, you know, Kyrie is a supremely talented player. And if we're being completely honest, he's a little bit better of a player individually than Kemba Walker is. But when you consider that Kyrie, you know, a lot, he gets a lot of bad press in, in New England and, you know, he's, he's earned some of it, but as I'm sure you've heard fairly often, uh, the last season's disaster was not even close to fully on him. Uh, we didn't know a lot of things that were going on, and maybe he handled it poorly. But in terms of what we see on the court, their games are not that different, other than surprisingly to many people who have seen Kemba in Charlotte. Uh, I think Kemba is a better distributor and a better floor general in that he will only try to run with the team on his back when there is no other choice, unlike Kyrie Irving, who seems to do it whenever the hell he feels like it, uh, and sometimes disastrously. So in terms of just the overall relationship of the players in terms of chemistry, I think is going to be vastly improved, and that's going to net us a handful of wins just on its own that we would have lost from the difference between the two players in terms of mm-hmm. overall talent. But beyond that... Um, I think people are going to be surprised when they see that when he is surrounded with talent comparable to the level of what he's used to playing with, like he was when he was at UConn, he's actually quite adept 
and moving the ball around and deferring to others and has even expressed excitement about seeing his usage rate drop in recent weeks. Yeah, so we might see a little bit of a different Kemba Walker. I'm sure he'll burn his fair share of teams with his scoring touch and his ability to really weave his way through the paint as well. And like I mentioned before, the Sixers didn't have anybody to really cover that before in J.J. Redick. You know, Jimmy Butler helped as the season went along. Uh, those two guys no longer with the Sixers, but now they have a guy in Josh Richardson who's a great two-way player, and they added Al Horford as well. Philly also revamped their bench this offseason, but with J.J. and Butler gone from the Sixers, there's a bit of a void when it comes to shot creation and three-point shooting. So, Jesse, you know, we talked about the Boston side of losing Kyrie and Al Horford, but where do the Sixers go shooting-wise when you lose J.J. Redick, one of the most prolific three-point shooters in the last five-plus years in the NBA, and Jimmy Butler, a guy who could take over and close games late for the Sixers last season. I think the biggest uptick you're going to see based off the guys that were here last season is definitely Tobias Harris. This is a guy that was playing at a near all-star level in L.A. before he came over to Philadelphia. And in L.A., he was option A. And in Philadelphia, he was option D, maybe even E, depending on where you put Ben Simmons in that pecking order. Because it really went Embiid, Redick, Butler, and then either Simmons or Harris, depending on the type of game they were playing. So I think he moves way up, as he should, and he gets to show off that shooting stroke that I, mean, I think he was shooting in the almost mid-40s from three last year at the time of his trade. And then you also have Mike Scott off of the bench, who I think, you know, he can chip in with some reliable shooting. He might not be able to light it up quite at the pace that he did last season, but he'll still be a reliable enough three-point shooter. I think Josh Richardson can be that guy. James Dennis just showed a shooting touch. You're not going to replace J.J. Redick on the perimeter. That'd just be ridiculous to suggest. And you're not going to replace someone like Jimmy Butler, but I think the makeup of this team is so different from the makeup last year that you can still find plenty of ways to score and plenty of different ways to score. Whereas last year it was pretty much Embiid has to shoot it. Redick has to go with his dribble handoff or Butler needs to do what he does. I think you legitimately have five guys in the starting lineup that can produce points. And there's one to maybe three guys on the bench that you can trust for points. So I think that's a much better situation for the Sixers. I think they're stronger as a whole, even if they don't have those marquee guys that they did last year. I have one quick question I wanted to pose to Jesse. And for me, as an outside uh, perspective, the two big things that are missing are the bench and also a closer. Now, the bench, I think it's very solvable. At the trade deadline, there's always a couple of veterans that you can pick up on the cheap on minimum from buyouts, from, from waivers, whatever. Uh, so I think you're going to be able to solve that, that problem. No issues, even if you might, you might not even need to, depending on how things play out. But I think the closer, for me, looks like a really big problem for you guys if you really want to compete for a title. And I'm, I'm curious whether you think that there's someone on board now who you think will emerge as your closer, or if there's someone uh, that you have your eye on, or you know, just the general concept that you need a closer. Like, what are your thoughts on that? I think Embiid's the clear choice to be the guy. I think everything that Brett Brown has said and everything that you've kind of seen pre Butler and pre Harris 
was clear that Embiid was the guy they were going to trust in those big moments. Um, a different spin on what you're asking here. I think the closer isn't necessarily going to be on the offensive end. Because with a lineup with Simmons, Richardson, Harris, Horford, and Embiid, Harris being the worst defender, and I mean he's he's not like it's not like he's a slouch. He's not a turnstile. So I think that's a defensive lineup where the Sixers will win games on that end. It's you know I think you're going to see that really be the bread and butter for this team is stopping teams. And I think because now even with Embiid off the floor, you still have Horford in there. And then when they bring in their guys off the bench, those Mike Scotts, James Ennis's, and Kyle O'Quinns, those are three guys with legitimate attitude. And I think that's something that they've lacked in the past years. I think they didn't really have it until they were making that run last year when Mike Scott got here, when Jimmy Butler got here. So I think there's actually a little bit of that vigor coming off of the bench that they've been missing. I think there's so much defensive skill. Oh, and I left out Matisse Thibel, who is definitely going to be used in defensive situations this year, it looks like. But then that starting five is so strong defensively that I wouldn't be surprised if they end up with the best net rating in the NBA. And that's not even a little bit of home. No, I don't that's disagree. Just... I don't disagree. I think you guys are easily in the running for a top three defense, if not better. And your offense isn't going to be bad either. It's I would assume top 10 and maybe even higher. Yeah, I think it's going to be some of those situations where like a team last year that wasn't really talked about a whole lot was the Indiana Pacers. Now two different rosters, last year's Pacers, this year's Sixers. But that was a team that prided themselves on the defense. And you saw a lot of games where they just held opponents to 95 points or less, which in the NBA is not really seeing a whole lot more these days but when when you talk about teams like the celtics and the sixers they're they've really been at, at the top of the conversation with regard to the eastern conference and the nba landscape over their two years over the last few years and and really there are two young players on both teams that have been under the magnifying glass more so than the other guys on the teams and that's ben simmons and jason tatum we we both know from our respective fan bases what we hear what their flaws are, what their strengths are. But when it comes to these guys reaching their full potential, what does it, what is it going to take for Jason Tatum, Justin, to, to reach that ceiling that Jesse mentioned earlier in the, uh, earlier in the show? He's got to become a more efficient player. He's got to pick his shots better. He's got to hit them better uh, than he did last season. But most importantly, he's really got to expand his game, particularly his ability to get into the paint without being stripped. And he's shown signs of it. But this is, again, an international play, in preseason play, and steps forward are not that hard to demonstrate when you are playing against not elite talent no offense to the players that we played against in in the world cup uh, for the united states no offense to preseason lineups but we all know it's not the same thing and it's going to be crucial uh for him to show some major steps forward like not in every aspect of his game but he needs to start showing real development for him to really be the franchise player they'd hoped he'd been or For that matter, if not him, Jalen Brown, one of the two of them has to show flashes at being at least a number two option for a championship team. And to date, 
you know, neither has shown much more than intermittent number three kind of option on a, on a title team and really only in flashes, not consistently. So that that needs to become consistent uh, from at least one of them, probably Tatum. But, you know, again, there are many people who think that it could, you know, end up being Brown who makes that step forward, depending on how they're used, how they fit into this team and a lot of things that aren't really in their control. So it's going to be a really interesting season for the Celtics. But for me, I am super curious to hear how y'all settle uh, Simmons's role within the team because his shooting, we all know that's the next big step for him. But there's also some usage issues that we hear rumbles about over in, in Celtics fandom about him not really getting along super great with some of his teammates. And I'm, I'm just real curious to see what y'all think about well, his growth? Well, first, first of all, first of all, I just wanted to, before Jesse goes here, um, Al Horford actually spoke to the media on the day that we're recording this, speaking about how the team has gotten together for different uh, team bonding exercises, and he mentioned that Ben Simmons has been one of the guys that has initiated these things. You, we've seen them go out and play paintball. They recently went to go see the Joker together uh, as a team. So one of the things that Ben Simmons did say when he returned from his summer work for Sixers Media Day was he fell back in love with the game of basketball. What caused him to fall out of love? We can speculate on that uh, for, for hours, but, but really he fell in love with the game again. And he mentioned in numerous interviews prior to preseason play that he knows that the team goes as him and Joel Embiid goes, even though they have different personal lives. Once they get on the court, um, they're in sync. So, Jesse, I guess I'm not sure what your thoughts on that are, but give us your thoughts and also what you expect from Ben Simmons. You know, the jumper is one of the things he needs to improve on. But aside from that, what else he might need to do in order to reach that next level? Well, addressing addressing Justin's concern there, I would just say it's all overblown. Um, having watched this group or those two together for three years, I've never seen any dispute. I've never seen any type of like outward disrespect towards each other. Like I've literally never I could I can't give you one single moment where Embiid and Simmons have said anything bad about each other, have ever looked frustrated with each other, anything like that. So I really don't, like, I hear it too. I've seen national media portray it that way. I have never seen that actually happen, and I don't know where it's rooted in. It feels just like an outsider, you know, cheap headline. Um, Very much in the same way where, Brandon can tell you this too. Whenever the Sixers get put on TNT or ABC or ESPN, and we have to hear constantly through the night about how Joel Embiid doesn't practice and he's on a minutes restriction when he's been practicing and off of a minutes restriction for over a year, um, that kind of thing, for whatever reason, surrounds the Sixers team. Uh, I really can't explain it. I would just say that I don't see it personally. With Ben Simmons this season, I think he has to take some type of step forward. I think last year his step forward was really on defense, and no one talks about that. They don't mention how much better he got on the defensive end of the court and that he is a better player in year two than he was in year one. But now he does need to develop that offensive game. He needs the jumper, not even because the team needs him to hit the jumper. The team needs him to get the respect when he's standing outside the perimeter to actually initiate the offense. And without J.J. Redick and Jimmy Butler to knock down shots for them, 
they're going to need all the spacing they can get. So if Ben Simmons can come in and just get enough respect around the league where people can't sag off of him and be playing him like he's in the paint when he's not in the paint, that's going to be the biggest thing for him this season. Because if he can actually draw defenders outside of the arc and then basically do what we've seen him do with his distribution ability, that's going to be a key for the Sixers. So both of these teams have seen their fair share of changes. We've talked about the roster turnover and everything. As we all know, the Sixers and Celtics go head-to-head four times, beginning with opening night, just a few days away on October 23rd. So we're going to move on to our predictions segment with who wins the head-to-head season series. So Justin, we'll start with you. You gave a little bit of a clue. They play four games. What are your thoughts on who will come ahead on that and why? Uh, I think it's going to be uh, three games to one in your favor. I do think the Celtics, probably one of the last two meetings, will have figured out how to use their bigs well enough to steal a game, particularly if it's later in the season uh, and perhaps y'all aren't so concerned um, or maybe have other bigger fish on your mind at that time. I feel like we could sneak away a game, but you know, a lot of Celtics fans are going to be really upset with me for saying three, one in your favor, but at least until we have either a move to, to rectify our front court rotation issues, or we find some answer internally, I I just do not see how we are going to adapt uh, to stop y'all offensively. We might be able to, uh, stay close to on pace with you guys with our offense, but we, we just won't have the defense to counter your offense and defense. All right, Jesse, you're up. I actually said the same thing as Justin. I think it'll be 3-1 in favor of the Sixers. Um, I don't have the same reasoning. I just don't think the Celtics will really be able to build up a front court this year. Um, but I think the issue is going to be the same thing it has been, and that's Brad Stevens versus Brett Brown. Um, and I don't think Brett Brown's a bad coach. I mean, I, I think everyone that knows anything about me knows that I love Brett Brown. But Brad Stevens has certainly had his number. Um, and I would even contest that the Celtics were a better team without Kyrie in the lineup because they were playing a more true version of Brad Stevens' system. And, and I think we saw that two years ago when the Celtics knocked the Sixers out. Um, versus last year when the Celtics, I forget who eliminated them, but it was that same thing where I, I think Kyrie has a tendency to shoot his team out of games. Um, and I think he definitely did that. So my issues want to be Brad Stevens versus Brett Brown. I think Brad Stevens will definitely be able to get his team to beat the Sixers at least once. And having such a Sixers killer like Kemba Walker at his disposal just reaffirms that feeling for me. Yeah, for me in the head-to-head battle, just because I know how intense the Sixers and Celtics games get, I think this one will end up going even two and two uh, for for no other reason than uh, divisional opponents that that play each other hard. So I think this will be a little bit different than when they play teams outside of the division. But yeah, I see these going two and two. But when it comes to overall records... Uh, Jesse, we'll start with you this time. Well, who do you think ends up with the better record, and, and what do you have as the final records for the Sixers and the Celtics? So I have the Sixers ahead of them. I have them at 59-23. and 23. 
I was really tempted to make that a 60. Um, I know I said on the the Hoops Head pod that we were a part of the other day that I had the Sixers going for 60 wins. But I'm going to make myself a little bit modest on it. I'll say 59. And then for the Celtics, I have them at around 47, 48 wins. I just don't think they're going to crack 50 with that front court the way it is. I think that's – if there's a strength that the East has – over the West, it's that the East has a much stronger group of bigs. I think with the Drummond and Griffin pairing in Detroit, Giannis out in Milwaukee, the Sixers group here, there's enough there to give the Celtics fits that I don't see them getting the 50, but I still see them being in the top half of the conference. All right, Justin, what about you? Uh, I largely agree with what Jesse has to say. Uh, I do think that this synergy uh, that – you know, good, good drafting in or signing uh, for the fit that he was mentioning earlier as well in terms of Brad Stevens' style of play. I do think that's going to give us a couple of wins over what the general national consensus is, which is right around the neighborhood of what you guys are talking, 47, 48 games, uh, but not much more than that. I really think that 51, 52 wins would be a realistic ceiling. And for me, I think 50 wins is – a very attainable uh, record. I write for this UK-based site called Double Clutch UK. Definitely check them out. We did a season guide for the whole league. And I'm a little more optimistic uh, for both us and Philadelphia uh, in terms of record. I have you guys at 5527 for, for that guide. Um, they tend, the panel has has Boston even lower than you guys think at 46-36 and Philly at 50-32. Um, I think that they are being very harsh on both teams in this situation, uh, which is surprising because we have a lot of Celtics fans on double clutch. So I don't know. Um, the biggest thing for, for you guys, I think, is going to be that lack of depth that you have at the moment. But like I said, I think it's really soluble, uh, soluble, solvable. Um, I think that the big challenge for you realistically isn't going to happen until the postseason when you collide with the Bucks. I think they're the only team that really has the, the right makeup to give you guys problems and enough depth to keep things rolling, uh, particularly if they stagger how they use Giannis. Um, so I think... You know, to, to hint at some of the other things, that's going to be one of your biggest problems of the season is Milwaukee. Yeah, for me, I have the Sixers at 54 and 28, up three wins from their 51 season, uh, 51 season a year ago. And I have Boston at 47 and 35. The only reason I give the Sixers a couple more, just three more wins, I feel like they'll probably go above that. But as Jesse is very familiar with my predictions, I try not to go on the overly optimistic side of things. I still want to see how they look without a capable shooter, a la JJ Redick. You know, they have better uh, they have better bench depth, but the shooting side of thing is something that they're going to need to figure out. You know, they've looked great in the preseason, but preseason is preseason, so that's where I have them. Uh, with regard to Boston, I just have them at forty-seven and thirty-five. You know, the East is no longer the weakest conference here in the NBA. There are a lot of difficult teams in the East, even the younger teams like the Hawks. I mean, the Magic are going to be good. There are a lot of up and coming teams that are going to be tough for for a team like the Celtics. So I have them with 47 wins. Now, when we move over to how that goes to the playoffs, I have the Sixers 
in the one seed and I have Boston in the four seed. Jesse, how do you have the seeding in the playoffs going? I have the exact same as you. I think it's going to go Sixers, Bucks, Pacers, Celtics. Just Justin? Uh, I have y'all second behind Milwaukee, and uh, I think that we're going to be a a fairly strong candidate for third, but there is some risk depending on how Oladipo comes back and how soon he comes back that they could find themselves behind the eight ball uh, chasing Indiana. So I don't think you guys are crazy for suggesting that, but I think it's going to be closer than a lot of people think between the two teams. Yeah, for me, I just don't see with the Sixers having Horford and Embiid, two guys pretty capable of covering a Giannis. I mean, who else necessarily did they go to? We saw the, yeah. Middleton. Middleton is going to scorch y'all just the way that he did us. And it's going to have to do with how you use L. I mean, if you if you don't kind of replicate uh, Boston's approach, which you're not going to with Embiid, but I mean, there there is, he, you know, they like... They had Embiid covering Giannis for their later matchups last yeah, year. Yeah, and that was pretty effective. Um, the thing that I think is going to be a problem for you guys is containing Middleton because Middleton can just go off uh, when all the attention is on Giannis. And that really is what sunk us, well, that and Kyrie, uh, last playoffs. And it nearly sunk us the, the last time we faced off with them the, the season before that. So in some ways, right. I think that you're going to see some of the, some similar issues, but you're going to be better prepared than Boston was. So I think you're going to get past them. Uh, in in the regular season, I don't know how it's going to work in the playoffs, though. It's really hard for me to envision uh, just how you're going to be using them. I'm going to need to see at least a couple of regular season games to get an idea about whether you really have the ability to cover him. I mean, they got weaker, uh, you know, losing some of their shooting. So that's going to help you guys immensely. But, Mm -hmm. but, there is still going to be that risk. Yeah, I think perimeter defensive-wise, when you have a Horford or an Embiid guarding a Giannis, then you have somebody like Josh Richardson or even Ben Benz that can cover a guy like Middleton. So um, I think the matchups are in favor of Philadelphia, both regular season and playoffs, which is why I have Philadelphia beating the Bucks in the Eastern Conference Finals to move on and face the Clippers in the Finals and lose to the Clippers in the Finals. For Boston... I have them going out in the first round against the Pacers. So with regard to how far each team will go, you've heard what I had to say. Jesse, how far are the Sixers and Celtics going to go in the playoffs? I said the Celtics will go no further than the East semis. Um, Will it be the Pacers to knock them out? I don't know. And I know Justin's over there like, you know, they keep keep harping on the Pacers. And you talked about Oladipo coming back. The one name you didn't mention is they added Malcolm Brogdon, which not only weakens the Bucks, but is an ideal fit for Nate McMillan's team. So I think the Pacers are the one of the most improved teams, and nobody's talking about them, which is why I'm so high on them this year. And then for the Sixers, I think they're going to the NBA Finals. Like I said at the beginning of the show, it's finals or bust for them this year. And I'm I don't have the same worries about the Bucks. As Justin mentioned, I also think that's a case of having two different types of teams where it doesn't necessarily mean the Bucks are better or worse than anybody, but I think the Celtics don't match up as well because they are a smaller team where the Celtics are just so, or the Sixers are just so big that they can kind of answer whatever the, the Bucks try to throw at them. And I love Chris Middleton. I think he's a really good player, but when he's your second best player and you're going up against what's really a star-driven league now, 
I just don't think it's enough. I don't think the Bucks have the firepower to really seriously contend. I think they're a great regular season team, but I don't think they have enough to go over the hump. All right, Justin, it's your turn. That's a pretty fair assessment. And I do think that all three teams are going to make some kind of moves, whether it's developing internally in ways that are adequate to do to do the job that is needed uh, or significant trades. Um it would not at all surprise me to see Milwaukee make a deal to fortify its shooting and maybe move on from some of the players that I'm not real crazy about them re-signing like Eric Bledsoe last season and being extended. Um, they may do that, particularly after hearing all the whispers of what it might do not to fully support Giannis in a what really is, even better than last year, their best championship shot uh, probably ever, uh, at least in recent memory. Um so for me, I think that Boston's most likely exit is the second round, but I could see them pulling things well enough together to, to make it to, to the Eastern Conference semifinals. Um, I think Milwaukee or Philadelphia are the most obvious stress to kick us out, but that really depends on the seating and where Boston falls in it. And I do agree with you that Indiana, if anyone's going to knock uh, Boston out besides those two teams, then Indiana is the team to watch. Um, I don't really see too much in the way of threats other than maybe uh, a, an unlucky matchup with the Detroit Pistons should they solve some of their own roster issues and make it to the postseason. I don't think they'll get very far, but as you have h- hinted at, at least as currently constructed, they're going to be a really big problem, no pun intended, uh, for the Celtics with that front court. Um and for you guys, I think you're going at least to the Eastern Conference Finals, uh, depending on what Milwaukee does and how they are. Uh, it's either you or them going. And from now, until I see how y'all actually execute when games count, I'm going to give the Bucks a slight edge just because I think that they have a little bit more continuity. Now, that doesn't mean that I think that you guys are going to necessarily lose. I'm just going with what I have seen so far and what I trust. All right. Well, we have one last prediction before the end of the pod. And this is a bit of a future outlook for these teams. Next summer, the offseason and beyond that. How? What do these teams need to do in order to regularly contend? For me, I've said it a bunch of times throughout this episode, but Philadelphia will need to address their shooting at some point. Uh, they'll need to make sure that they continue to add depth to the bench, bench because that's been something in previous seasons that has held them back. And I also think that they need to change their draft strategy a little bit. I love the Thibel pick. Um, but I think that they could hit more on the margins with regard to the draft. And I think that, um, you know, you look back to the Fultz draft and even before that, when Brian Colangelo was at the helm, they made the obvious picks in in Ben Simmons. They made the obvious picks uh, in Markel Fultz at the time. But the later round picks, you know, where other teams hit, that's where the Sixers have not really done too well. So I'd like to see them be able to draft younger players and develop them because one of Brett Brown's biggest strengths is player development. So they really need to hit in those later rounds. And hopefully some of those guys will end up being um, shooters rather than defensive specialists, but have a little bit of both. So that's what I think for Sixers wise, Uh, Justin, how about you for, for the Celtics? Well, I mean, if there is, 
one thing that we have all been harping on in terms of what Boston's most glaring weakness is, it's really solidifying who is our starting front court. Um, I don't think that we have a clear solution on board. We may be able to develop one internally, but at least when it comes to the, the beefier, older school type of centers, we are going to need to do something whether, whether that is, you know, getting uh, our, our new rookie from overseas, uh, Vincent Poirier, up to NBA speed, which may prove too difficult, at least this season, to accomplish, uh, or making a deal for somebody who is a little bit more skilled, a little bit more mobile, and a little bit more capable defensively, at least in terms of knowing the plays and being comfortable in the NBA. I think that is what needs to happen uh, particularly if they want to contend regularly, then they need somebody who's also the same guy who is able to defend the perimeter. And for now, there's just not any obvious solutions within the reach of what Boston can get through obvious means. So it's going to be interesting to see how Ainge puts this together. All right, Jesse, your future outlook for the Sixers. Um, Well, really with both teams, I think they're in similar situations where they've kind of spent their money. They're kind of, they're kind of tied into the rosters they have where the Celtics are kind of looking long-term at, a core of Kemba, Gordon Hayward, Jason Tatum, and Jalen Brown once they're re-signed. And then you have the Sixers with that starting five they have there. Those are pretty much a sizable chunk of the payroll. And aside from like minor changeouts on the bench or in Boston's case at the five, these are pretty much the teams now and in the future when you look like three, four, or five years from now. So I think both teams kind of have to play with the cards they're, they've been dealt proverbially. In that case, I think the Sixers are better off just looking at that group. Um, Danny Ainge obviously has all of his picks to play with, but is he really in a position to put those picks into anything? If if he can't afford the financial of a star player, then I'm not sure how he's going to be able to really parlay them now. So I feel like the Celtics may have played themselves into a corner here with their riches of assets that they didn't cash in quite as soon. And I think the Sixers need to really hope that Ben Simmons turns that corner, that Matisse Thibel develops like you were just talking about, Brandon. And, you know, because other than that, there's not really going to be room to bring in new players to either of these teams. Go ahead, Justin. Uh, I, I definitely agree. I do think, you know, Danny does still have the Memphis pick and a couple other uh, decent assets in his war chest. But you're right. It's very depleted. And they really only have one more swing at getting a starter level player with a trade scenario. Uh, so they're going to go real hard at developing internally as well uh, to try to fill that role. But I do think that you're that you're right that they're 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 going to get a lot of clarity this season based on what they do have in hand, and they're, then they're going to need to make a hard decision on whether they really want to roll into the future with what they have. And I do think you know there is a better than good chance that the solution is internally, uh, whether it is you know addressing the situation at the five or the the Jays on the wing, developing into at least one of them the kind of player that they need with enough uh, other other uh, contracts on hand to get where they need to. But this is a critical season for both teams, and I'm really excited to actually see games to count towards what that ends up becoming. Yes, and it's only a few days away from us as it stands right now, and we want to thank everybody for tuning in uh, because that is a wrap of the crossover pod with Garbage Into Gold and the Celtics Wire. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed it, and... If you are interested about how you can follow us, 
please uh, follow us on Twitter at Garbage Into Gold. And Justin, you guys can be found at the Celtics Wire, correct? Celtics Wire. Uh, the podcast is Celtics Lab. Uh, we have recently split off from our initial parent organization with Celtics Life. We wish them the best. Uh, we went in different directions after I joined the USA Today Sports Media Group. And they have been, you know, really gracious to to give us a good following for the podcast. But uh, really appreciate you, appreciate you guys giving us a chance to to get the word out that we are now doing a very different kind of format, uh, a deep dive with this kind of coverage into uh, whatever kind of issues that really isn't getting the attention in whatever local media uh, game by game tendencies tend to present. Uh, you can also find my work on. Uh, Double Clutch UK, as I mentioned before, um, and uh, oh my god, I completely forgot I have to edit this out. Um, what the hell is the name of the new site that I just started writing for? Oh yeah, okay, here goes. And off the glass, uh, you can see a lot of more general NBA stuff on on that website. Uh, where do we got? Where do we? What do my listeners find uh, y- y- y'all's uh, print work? Uh, if you are still doing that. Uh, well, I can be found uh, doing work for PhiladelphiaSportsNation.com, who also presents our podcast. Also, Sixers writing for 97.3 ESPN, as well as some Phillies work at PhilliesNation.com. Jesse, I'm not sure if you're still writing. Uh, very sporadically on just a personal blog of mine. So once I'm back in back in the writing game, I'll let you know. All right. Well, thanks again, everybody, for listening, and we'll catch you again on the next episode of our respective podcasts.